The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There is a, a sore subject involving a card game in my marriage. I would like to share this with you, okay? There is a a particular card game. It's like the game War. Has anyone ever played the game War before? Okay, several of you have played this game War. The idea of War is you're just kind of flipping over cards and you're trying to collect everybody else's cards, okay? That's kind of the goal. It's not a super interesting game, but this game is like War. It's called Egyptian War, okay? And there's some other, other names for this same game, and there's a couple other um, uh, dimensions to this game. It's a couple other rules than just regular war, but the same objective is true. You try and get all of the cards for yourself, and that's how you win. But one of the key um, rules to this game is if I lay down a seven, and then the next person lays down a seven face up, or any two cards that match, whoever in the circle slaps that those matching cards gets all of the cards, okay? So if there's like a huge pile building up, sometimes you play this game with multiple decks of cards, if there's a huge pile and someone slaps it and gets all the cards, it can make it a little, I mean, it's, it's angering, okay? It's maddening it just when that happens. All right, so I used to play this game with some of my friends back in college. It was a, a popular game that we would play. And I, I was dating this beautiful young woman at the time by the name of Rebecca. Eventually married this woman, despite the story I'm about to tell you, okay? And um, she said, hey, well, what's this game that you're playing? Can you teach me this game? And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll teach her this game, not realizing that Rebecca comes from a long line of serious card players. Like in the Ferguson family, I mean, card playing is a serious ordeal, and they are very gifted at playing cards. I didn't realize this, and um, especially, you know, when it comes to, like, having quick reflexes, I'm like, all right, well, I'll, I'll go easy on her. She's my girlfriend, after all. I mean, I kind of have the reflexes of a cat, so I don't want to, you know, scare her off from this game, but I did not realize something about this young woman I was dating. She has reflexes like a ninja, and so as we were playing, every time there'd be a match, I mean, it was like lightning, like before I could even think. She was slapping, taking all of my cards every single time, and it started to wear a little bit on my masculinity. And so I got so exasperated, I said, okay, officially we will never play the game Egyptian War ever again. In fact, if you see her around the church today, I'd appreciate it if you did not bring it up. She will start gloating, and it won't go well for me the rest of the day. It's become a sore subject, the game Egyptian War. Now, I don't know if you have something like that in your circles. So maybe at work, there's this one like taboo subject you just don't bring up with your boss. Because if you bring this up, he is going to be mad or she is going to be mad for the rest of the week. Okay, you just don't bring that up. Or maybe when your family gets together, there's kind of like a taboo subject. You know, don't bring this up around Uncle Ernie. He'll go on a tirade for the rest of the night. Okay, and there's these sensitive subjects that you just kind of leave alone. Well, there's something like that in our faith when it comes to the spiritual side of our lives. And especially if you're here and you would consider yourself a Christian, you'd say, I would say I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ. So often there's this one subject that we might say, 
Okay, this is something you just, you don't really talk about this. You'd never admit if you're thinking this or struggling with it. You'd never bring this up. Uh, on the flip side, you might be here and you might be saying, look, I would not say that I'm a Christian. You'd say, I, I'm just kind of asking questions right now. I'm, I'm kind of sorting through things. Maybe you'd say, I'm more of an agnostic. I don't know what I believe or if there is anything that you can know for sure. Or maybe you're here and you say, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm an atheist. I just do not believe in God altogether. And if you fit into any of those categories, first off, I'm so glad that you're here. You are welcome here. And we, we love journeying with people who have honest questions. If you're in one of those categories where you say, I'm not sure that I consider myself a Christian, you probably don't see this subject as taboo, as off limits. In fact, that's right where you're at. But if you are a Christian, you'd probably say, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable talking about this. And here's what the subject is. It's when we're struggling with God. When I've got doubts. I've got questions. I've got some anger. There's something in my past that... If I'm really honest, like I still don't totally have squared it away with God. Like I'm still a little bit angry about that. Or man, I see things out there and I'm like, God, I got big questions. Or sometimes I'm just, I hear something or I'm just thinking and I, I, I have some doubts. You might be in a place where I'm not sure what I believe about God. That's like right where you live. You're like, I, 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 that's what I'm talking about. I don't know. I have doubts about God. I'm not sure I, I believe that. But if you're saying I'm a Christ follower, then you might be in that place. Where you're like, well, you can never admit that you have doubts. Like if there's stuff in my past or there's something that like I feel like God's not answering the prayer the way I want him to, like I just kind of shove that down because how could I admit to myself, let alone admit to anybody else that, man, my, I don't know, man, I'm having some doubts about God or questions or I'm, I'm angry at God. I mean, good Christians don't do that, right? The good Christians, they, they have no matter what, you know, I'm pushing through, I never waver. I mean, how could I ever admit that? That's just not something you bring up or even admit to yourself. So I just shove that down into my soul, right? Well, if you've ever been tempted to believe that, then you need to hear what the Bible says about struggling with God. And especially if you're here saying, you know, I, I'm open. I don't know what I believe, and I, I'm openly struggling with God. Then you really are going to want to hear what the Bible says about struggling with God because it may shock you. We're going to look in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. We're looking at Psalm 88 the book of Psalms, chapter 88, and we're going to look through this entire psalm. We're starting in verse 1. The first thing we're going to look at is, is kind of the introduction to the psalm. Here's what it says. It's, if you have um, a Bible or a Bible app, you can open to it. It's also going to be up here on the screens. Psalm 88, verse 1, it says this. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Lehanoth, a maskil of He-Man, the Ezraite. And this is what it says. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I'm, accounted, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, 
and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. Now let's pause right here in the psalm. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about the content in a second, but first I want to talk about that introduction because there's a lot of technical things in there that actually make this psalm fascinating. Okay, the first thing is it tells you who wrote this psalm. It's a guy by the name of Himan. Himan wrote this, says he's the author, and Himan is one of the most famous worship leaders in the entire Old Testament. He's one of the most well-known in the history of Israel. In fact, David, King David, is the one who personally appointed Himan as one of the official worship leaders in Israel. He's remembered even into the next generation. Uh, Solomon is considered one of the wisest men in Israel in the times of Solomon. So he is famous. So if you can think of the most famous worship leader of the day, it would be Haman in his day and throughout history. He himself wrote this psalm. A couple other interesting things. It uses some technical musical terms in there that are ancient. The first one is it says it's a song, a psalm, and it says it calls it a maskil. Now, maskil is one of the it's a technical musical term. Scholars are not exactly sure what it means, but it probably means something like a psalm of contemplation. And then there's another technical word in there that we was the last word we read. You'll see it another time in the psalm, and you'll see this at various places throughout psalms. If you're looking at, at your Bible, circle it or highlight it in your Bible app. It's the word selah, and you'll see that word periodically through the psalms. It's a technical musical term. Scholars are not 100% sure what it means, but probably at very least the word means pause. And literally, Selah means to cast up. So it probably means at this point in the song, pause and throw your attention upwards to God. Pause and reflect for a second. Selah. And at this point, they don't know. Maybe the music would swell and it would be like this instrumental music would would swell while they're actually performing this. Or maybe at that point, the worship leader would have a few encouraging words. Or maybe at this point, they would raise their hands or bow to the ground. Whatever would actually happen, they don't really know. But selah is a technical musical term, meaning pause and throw your attention up to God for a second. Now, why do we get in all that minutiae that's only interesting to Bible nerds like me? Okay, why did we get into all those details? It's for this reason. What you're about to read is really not what you're going to expect to see in a psalm, and it's important for you to, to know ahead of time. This is an official, like, um, this is an official praise song that's commissioned in Israel with instructions for how to perform it in the congregation. This is not like a song that like the teenagers in Israel would listen to when their parents were not around, okay? It's not like an underground song. This is something that was designed to be sung in the congregation. Now let's look at the content. What does it say right off the bat? The first thing is the, right, the psalmist, psalm writer, is describing himself like this. He says, he says, I'm crying to you, God, day and night. Constant crying. He says, my soul filled with troubles. He says, imagine my my soul, if it was a jar, you're pouring troubles in. It's filling my soul until it's running over. And then he says, he describes himself, he says, I feel like one being dragged down to Sheol. Now, Sheol is a Hebrew word that's describing like Hades or the place of the dead. 
He says, I feel like I'm being dragged down to Sheol. And then if you notice, he uses all these other words to describe essentially the same thing. He says, I feel like I'm being, I'm, I'm being dragged down to the grave. I'm being let loose among the dead. I'm walking around with the dead like someone who's slain. I'm being pulled down to the pit. Later, he says, he's going to say, it's like I'm in Abaddon, which is, means like the place of destruction. Okay, so in modern terms, here's what he's saying. God, I am in hell right now. I mean, I am living hell on earth. This is the worst. I feel like I'm being ripped apart. I feel like this is death itself. I am in hell. These are pretty strong words. And he ends with, I am in hell. Selah. Pause and reflect on that for a second. Is what he's communicating. Now look what he says next. Let's keep going. Psalm 88, verse 8. You have caused my companions, to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow every day. I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Okay, the next stanza. Did you notice what he says? He says, God, I am all alone. All my companions, all my friends, everyone's left me, and, and I am a horror to them. In fact, he doesn't just say he's lonely. Did you notice his tone changed a little? He became uh, accusatory to God. He said, you caused all of my companions to leave me. You have made me a horror. It's like his first stanza is bad. He says, pause and reflect. His next stanza is worse. Pause and reflect. And if you think, I mean, it sounds like if, you, if you're reading it the way I am, I'm like, man, you might not want to say some of that stuff to God. That's a little brazen. Okay, if you think that's brazen, listen to what he says next. Verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death. Watch this. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Third stanza, even worse. Here's what he says. Did you notice what he said there right at the beginning of that section? He says, let me ask you a question, God. That's never a good start. Let me ask you a question, God. Is your steadfast love, is that experienced by those who are dead? Those who are experiencing death itself? Like, is your faithfulness experienced and demonstrated in Abaddon in the place of destruction? Let me ask you something. Are your wonders, is your power displayed in, in the land where there's only destruction and death? 
Or, or how about your righteousness and your goodness? Is that seen in the place where all where everyone is just forgotten in this in this place like Hades and Sheol? And I want you to hear what he's saying because this is uh, this is pretty shocking. The guy who's writing this psalm is essentially saying this. I feel like I am in Sheol, in hell itself. And from where I'm sitting, I'm not experiencing your love, your steadfast love. I'm not experiencing your faithfulness. I see no faithfulness. I see no power from you, God. I see no righteousness. I don't see your goodness from where I'm sitting right now, where I'm feeling like I'm in hell itself, surrounded by darkness, experiencing your wrath like waves coming over me. I'm not experiencing your, your love, your faithfulness, your power, or your goodness. Now that's, I mean, there's probably not more foundational attributes of God to question than his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his power, and his goodness. I mean, let's just take one of those. His steadfast love, the Hebrew word there is chesed. That might be one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament because it's describing God's unique, unfailing, unwavering, covenantal love that he absolutely promises to Israel. And he's questioning these foundational attributes of God. I don't know if you've ever had someone question something in you that's just foundational to who you are or just something that you're really passionate about. Okay, I am passionate about several things, but one of the things that I happen to be passionate about is foosball, table sport. Any foosball enthusiasts out there with me? Three of us. I mean, we got to hold together. We're going to start a club after this, okay? I, I would consider myself a foosball enthusiast, okay? And so on Wednesday afternoons, every now and then, um, even if I'm like super busy, I just can't help myself but to walk through Waffle Wednesday, okay? You guys know about Waffle Wednesday, right? Okay, Wednesday afternoons. Um, after school, kids from local uh, high schools and middle schools, they come over, a couple hundred of them in our student ministry. We give them waffles. They hang out. Our, our student ministry team ministers to them. And I, I was walking through one day, and there was a crowd around the foosball table. And being, a foos, being passionate about foosball, I said, what is this? I've got to see what's happening. And there's this kid, and he's just beating everyone he plays. And these kids are like, this guy is amazing. No one can beat this kid. And I'm like, oh, really? He says, no one, I mean, no one can touch this guy. And I said, well, I mean, could I, could I play? And they're like, oh, you don't want to play him. He'll dominate you in this game. And I said, okay, time out. You can say that I'm ugly. You can call me dumb, but do not knock my foosball abilities, okay? And so even though I had a lot to do, I said, okay, I've got to keep my priorities. I need to, keep, I need to teach these students a lesson in foosball mechanics, okay? And so I pushed them aside and I played this kid, okay? Now, who won is not technically important to the story, <laughs> all right? Better word might have been domination, okay? But I shook his hand like a gentleman and went back to work. Okay, anyway, the point is, I don't know if you have ever had someone question something foundational about you. It gets you to the core. There's really not much more you could question about God that's as fundamental to who he is than his unwavering love, his faithfulness, his power. He's saying to the Almighty, I don't see your power. 
and his goodness, I'm not so sure you're good from where I'm sitting. I mean, there's not much more you can question about God than that. And did you notice something else that he said in there? He said, I have been, I have been struggling with ways that I, I've faced suffering from you. Did you notice he said, from my youth up? He's like going into ancient history with God. He's saying, let, let me just, can we go back some chapters, God? Because you've done this to me before. I mean, he's digging deep here. And then he ends with this phrase. And if you're reading in an ESV version, English Standard Version, there's a footnote at, the, at this last phrase. And it says another way that you could translate it is this. Darkness has become my only companion. Can we read between the lines about that for a second? Do you realize what he just said to God? He's saying, I am alone. My family is not around me. My friends are not around me. It's me and darkness. So you know who else he's saying is not with him? God. You're not even here. It's just me and darkness. Now here's what's interesting about this psalm. That's the end. Wow, gee, thanks for picking such an uplifting psalm for us to study today. Wow, appreciate it. Looking for a little encouragement today. This doesn't seem like it's it. Okay, this psalm is actually a tremendous comfort. Let me share with you why. The psalms have some very raw and honest songs and poems in it. Most of the psalms that we're familiar with are these ones that are just super hopeful and it's all, it's all things are going great. Okay, a psalm like this, you're not going to find on a plaque on Pinterest, okay, as you're scrolling through it. But these are important. And this one is uniquely important. Okay, most psalms are very honest and then there's a turning point halfway through where the the psalmist is complaining and then says, but I realize truth, and then it declares truth. I want to give you a couple examples so you can see that. Psalm 73. I don't know if you've ever felt like this before, but have you ever felt like this? God, I don't understand why I'm doing things or trying to do things the right way. That guy over there is doing things the wrong way. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about what's right. But my life is, I'm failing and he's succeeding. You ever felt like that? How come I'm trying to have integrity? I'm trying to be loving. I'm trying to be kind and gracious. That guy doesn't mind if he steamrolls over people and cheats them, but yet he's winning and I'm losing. You ever felt like that before? If you have, you need to read Psalm 73. Listen to what he says. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, God, why do I even bother trying to do the right thing if I do it and my life falls apart? It's in vain. Then he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. He says, I was so exhausted from constantly saying, why? Why are they winning and I'm losing? I was just so tired of it. I was wearisome. I gave up. And then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then I went to church. 
And he says, and I remembered their end. I discerned their end, and I remembered when I do things God's way, he'll, he makes it work out according to his plan in the end. But when I do things against God's way, outside of God's plan, it leads to destruction, which is why he's trying to protect me from it. So even though it doesn't look like it right now, I remember the end of the story. If someone goes that path, it's not going to go well. If I go this path, I will not regret it. And he has this psalm where he's being very real and we can relate to it, but then he turns a corner. One more, listen to this, Psalm 77. Maybe you've felt like this before. Here's what he says in, in verse 7. He says, will, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Pause, look up to God, reflect on, on those truths. And after he reflects, he turns a corner. Listen to this, this is powerful. He says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? He's being really honest. He's saying, God, have you just forgotten? Like, did your promises just, did you just stop, you know, holding up your promises? Did you stop loving me? Did you stop having compassion? And then he says, and he pauses and reflects, Selah. And then he says, no, no, no. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to remember your deeds of old. I remember those stories in the Bible where there are characters in the Bible that felt just like how I feel now, but you made it work out. He says, I remember how you, I've seen how you've worked in my life. I remember that this happened and, and now and how in the end you made it work out. He says, I'm going to hold on to that. There was a turn in the psalm. He says, pause and reflect. And then he changed his perspective. But that is not really how it works in Psalm 88, is it? Every time he says, Selah, it gets worse after. And it ends completely in darkness. So why would God want that in the Bible? Why is that a psalm to sing, like as a congregation from time to time? Like, why is that important that he gives all these instructions and it's preserved? Why is there a psalm like that? It's confusing, but it is so instructive and so comforting. If this was just like something in a story, like there are times that guys like David or Moses or these characters are complaining to God and you're like, oh, I don't think I would do that if I were you. And then, and you could say, well, it's just a story. It's just describing what they're doing. It's just saying, hey, this is what they did. It's not necessarily recommending it. It's describing it, not prescribing it. But this right here in Psalm 88, it's given to the congregation to sing. Why would God give a psalm like this that seems like it has absolutely no hope in it for his people to sing? There actually is one piece of hope in it. It's the very first words. If you went all the way back to the beginning, it starts by calling out to God. It says, Lord, literally Yahweh, the personal name of God, Yahweh, Elohim, Yeshua. Lord, God of my salvation. And that declaration lays this foundation that sets up this whole psalm. He's starting with this. God, you are my salvation. 
You are the one how I am going to be rescued. I cannot rescue myself. I cannot save myself. You are a God that comes down and saves and rescues. You're a God of mercy and forgiveness. You are a God that it's not about me earning my way to you. You come down and save me. And when you understand that God is the one who saves us, we don't save ourselves before God, that creates the context with God, the understanding in our relationship that we can be honest with God like this. In other words, what this psalm is saying, God is a safe person place to struggle with God. God is a safe place to struggle with God. Let me tell you more specifically what I mean by that. There's three phrases. If you're a note taker, I want you to write these down. Here's the first one. God is secure enough to handle your doubts. He's pretty secure in who he is. He's not so fragile, so vulnerable that if you express a doubt to him that all of a sudden he gets all insecure and all threatened and all mad because you've touched a nerve. He is the creator of all that it is. That is, He's the, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is secure in who he is and he's, because he's secure in who he is, he is a safe place to struggle with God. He is a safe place to struggle. He's a safe place to take your doubts and say, God, I'm doubting this right now. He's safe to do that because he's secure. Second thing, God is gracious enough to handle your anger. Maybe there's something in your life that you're, that you're saying, man, this, this thing in my past if I'm honest, I, I'm trying to swallow it down, but I'm still angry about that with God. Why did you let that happen? Or right now, I, I've got these prayers. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but have you ever been praying about something? God, please let this happen. Please make this happen. And it's not just that God says no, but it gets worse. You ever had that happen? Like, God, what in the world? Why do I even pray? God is saying, I am gracious enough to handle your anger. You say, well, wait a minute, time out. Isn't being angry at God, like shaking a fist at God, isn't that sin? Like, isn't that blasphemous to God to say, how dare you? Isn't that blasphemy to say something like that to God? Yes. That's the point of, of this passage. Yes, it is, he, but he is so gracious, he can handle it. In other words, hear me on this. There are some times that we're deep down angry at God, but we think it becomes a sin once we acknowledge it or verbalize it. It's always been a sin in my heart, so when I finally admit it to myself and maybe to someone else, now God can finally deal with the sin that's down there. God is gracious enough to handle our anger. In other words... Because God is the one that saves us. It's not about me being perfect and me. It's not about me having unwavering faith in God. It's about the fact that out of his grace and mercy and forgiveness, he saves me by, the, by Jesus Christ. His death on the cross washes away my sins. It's, it's because of his grace that he pours on me that, that I can vent my anger to him safely. The cross 
is bigger than my anger. His grace is bigger and can absorb my anger. And so he's saying, by having a psalm like this, he's saying, you have a safe place to vent your anger toward me. Vent it to me. My grace is bigger than your anger. I can handle it. Here's the third thing. God is loving enough to handle your questions. He handles us. He wants to be our father. He handles us like a father. And because he's a good father, he doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. But he's loving, and so when he gives us something that we need that's painful, he wraps his arms around us and says, but I'm sure you have questions. So tell me your questions. If you've ever taken a child to the doctor um, for some uh, uncomfortable procedure, you've been there before. So let's say your child has to get a shot, okay, and you take, especially if they're little, so little you can't explain it to them, and you take them and, and you walk into the doctor's office and then you lay them on the table and they're laying there like, oh, this should be interesting. And then all of a sudden they get an injection in the leg and all of a sudden their eyes get huge and their lip starts to quiver and there's this long pause, which means there's going to be a long blast at the other end of that. And all of a sudden they cry. What do you immediately do? You scoop them up and you hold them in your arms. You brought them in and you're hugging them and holding them because you know this is going to be painful. You let them down just long enough and then you scoop them back up in your arms. God says, I am like a father. He's saying, I know that this is not what you want. This is what you need. And so he says, so I, I'm bringing you into this, but as soon as it's done, I'm holding you in, in my arms. He says, and I'm sure you have questions. In other words, he's not a cold strategist, tactician that's standing back, that's saying, well, this is what you need. I know you don't like it. No, he's a father. He's loving enough. He wants your questions. He wants to walk through this with you. He's loving enough to handle your questions. God put a psalm like this in here for us to teach us how to struggle with God. It's to know that God is a safe place to struggle with God. Take your doubts to God. Take your anger to God. Express your questions to God. In fact, the practical response to this, like what do we literally do differently in our lives, this trains us how to pray. If my prayer, prayers are just simply like a wish list that I pass up to God every day, like we're not accessing some of the most powerful parts of prayer. He's saying, come to me and be real, be honest. There's nothing off limits. We have that kind of intimate relationship. Express yourself, vent to me. Some of you, like literally, maybe you can just bow your head there and just in your seat, wherever you're at or whenever you pray and you can just pray like that. For me, like I, I got to journal and write it out and, and be honest in my prayers or go for a walk. Or I, I know someone that to remind themselves that God is there with them, hearing them, they actually will sit down and they'll pull up an empty chair visualizing that, that Jesus is right there with, with them because the reality is he is. And will speak knowing that Jesus is right there in our presence. And so the, the practical application of this is learn to pray honestly to God like this. But there's another level of this application. 
This is a psalm that's for the congregation corporately. We have to be a community that we can express this to each other. Some of you in your community group this week, it's the time for the first time maybe for decades where you need to admit to yourself and to other trusted brothers and sisters, I've got some pent-up anger towards God. and I've never said that or never admitted that. I've got doubts. I've got questions. So well, what will they think? Isn't that the sign of an immature Christian? No, a sign of an immature Christian is having those and thinking that God or community is not a safe place to express that. That's what immaturity is. Maturity is, is whenever God brings you to that place, you know he's safe enough for me to express that to him and to others. And then we've got to be a safe community to receive that, not try to fix it, not try to convince them, but just sit in it with them, hold on to passages like this, pray together, hope together, believe together, empathize with each other, and walk through that together as a community. That's what this passage is training us. That's why this is such a comfort, because we can speak like this to God because of His grace. You know, there's one other thing you've got to see in this psalm right here. In the very beginning, the language said this. It said, Yahweh Elohim Yeshua. And that last word, Yeshua, is a word for salvation. But you know it's also turned into a name? People were called Yeshua. In fact, that's the name, that exact Hebrew name is the name that Mary and Joseph were told to name their son. We just translated into English as Jesus. Yeshua is the Hebrew name behind our English name, Jesus. And so since this psalm sets the heading, calling out to God, our salvation, Yeshua, and we're this side of Jesus, can we put on Jesus' lenses again and read through this psalm and see what we come up with, I mean, rethink through this psalm with me. What is the, the writer saying? He's saying, God, I am filled with troubles from my youth up. He says, all my companions have abandoned me. I've become a horror. He says, why have you cast me away? He's saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm being dragged down to the grave, down to the pit, to Sheol, I'm being dragged down to Sheol itself and your wrath is pouring on top of me in waves. And then can I reread these verses and re-ask these questions again with Jesus' lenses on? Think of what it's saying. It's, it, the psalmist is crying out, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in, the, in Abaddon in the place of destruction or your wonders, your power known in the darkness or your righteousness, your goodness in the land of the forgotten? Christian, now because of Jesus, you know the answer to that. Is his steadfast love declared from the grave? Yes! Jesus was in the grave because he loved us and was paying for our sins. Is God's faithfulness declared in the place of destruction? Yes, because even though Jesus is being destroyed, the Son of God, the author of life, is being killed, even though Jesus himself is being destroyed, it is an act of God's faithfulness to us despite our faithlessness. He says, are your wonders seen among the dead? 
Yes, because his power, the incredible wonder of Jesus being raised from the dead, defeating death itself, that is a display of God's power. What about his righteousness? Is it seen in the land of the forgotten? Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. He paid for our sins. He took our sins upon him and he gave us his righteousness. We are declared righteous in God's sight because of the death and the forgiveness from Jesus Christ. You see what this psalm is saying? Even in the midst of suffering, God demonstrated the suffering of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God demonstrated His unfailing love, His faithfulness, His power, and His goodness. And Christian, if that's true of Jesus, then that's true even in your suffering. Can I encourage you with this thought? God himself is no stranger to suffering. Jesus Christ suffered because he loves you. He's faithful to you. He suffered on your behalf. He is the one that saves you. I want to extend an invitation to you. First, if you're here and you say, I've been struggling with anger or doubt and questions, take it to God. He's a safe place to struggle with God. Take those to God. If you're saying, and maybe you need to admit them, that's actually a sign of maturity because God brings all of us in different seasons to places where we struggle with him. And maybe today, it's even this week, you can find a trusted friend, you can jump in a group or in your group, you can admit that and, and find healing by letting God work through that in your heart. But others of you here, you might be in that place where you're saying, look, this is why I've struggled to believe in God because I've got these questions or these doubts or this anger. And maybe today what you need to hold on to is that he wants to walk alongside you with, in the midst of that suffering and he himself is no stranger to suffering. Jesus suffered for us. And maybe today you can just simply put your faith that he wants to rescue. It's not about you being good enough to earn salvation. He saved you from his mercy and love. And even though you may feel so far away from God, he's right here saying, I want to make things right today. I'm offering you forgiveness. Maybe you can just simply accept that today. Let's take a moment now and have a quiet moment, just us and God. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and just maybe today as if it's just you and God alone. Are you at that place where you just want to receive God's forgiveness? And if that's you, I want you to pray this simple prayer right there in your seat, in your heart to God. Just pray this. Say, God, I, I believe that you sent Jesus to suffer for me. Pray, Jesus, I, I believe that you died for me and you rose again. Say, God, thank you for having a plan to save me. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering what I should have suffered, taking the wrath of God I should have taken so that I can be forgiven. God, I give you my life. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. 
If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.